Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning, church. How we doing? We doing all right? All right. Good. <laughs> yeah, let's pray and get out of here. Um, just kidding. Hey, uh, I'm Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here uh, at F.E. Hanford. For those of you who are new with us, we're excited to, uh, to have you here. Um, I want to take another second. I know Jeff kind of showed you the picture of Emily and that sort of thing. And she's floating around uh, here somewhere. And like Jeff said, she's really just kind of observing right now. Um, but man, we are incredibly excited to, uh, to have her on our staff and a part of our team. Uh, Jeff wasn't lying when he said you will love her. Um, it is a factual thing. Um, and so with, with this new hire, there comes excitement, but there's also a tendency for us to, to look back and think about, okay, well, why is this position open in the first place? And so, um, obviously, um, Emily is, uh, is coming on with us, but we, we think back to Pastor Betty, and we think back to all of the incredible things that Betty was a part of in the life of our church, and we're incredibly thankful for her and for the things that she did and for the service um, that she put forth, and we, we indeed miss her. Um, but with, uh, with hiring Emily for birth through kindergarten, that would tell you we we still have a gap from first grade to fifth grade. And so we're working to, uh, to fill that gap as well. And for, if you see a volunteer in any of children's ministries, man, they have been running our ministry for us. Give them a hug, buy them a meal, clap for them. It's good. Um, they've been doing an incredible job for us. And so any way you can give them sugar or caffeine or whatever it is, give them that. So they, uh, they continue to, uh, to keep going. But we, the, the, this really is uh, an exciting time for us in the life of our church. Um, if I seem tired, I, I, I know I said it's exciting. I didn't sound exciting. My wife was at women's retreat this weekend. Um, she came back late last night. And so, uh, man, I forget what all the work that she puts in, uh, with our, uh, with our five boys. And so, uh, so anyway, um, continue to, uh, to commit this whole transition to prayer though. Like I said, like I've said numerous times, um, yeah, I'm on staff and I've been here for about three months. Uh, but man, we still got a long way to go church. And so, uh, continue to pray for this, pray for Emily, um, and whoever else God would have for us, uh, in this next season as, as we're, uh, trying to figure out, uh, the different pieces to our, uh, to our children's ministry. So, uh, if you see Emily, and um, she was the one on the screen, um, say hi, give her a hug, give her a high five, whatever. Um, again, you'll you'll love her. But uh, let's get to it. We've uh, we've been in this series called Epistles, um, and we're talking through uh, Paul's uh, Paul's epistles, Paul's letters. Epistle is a, a fancy name for letter. And so we're talking through the Pauline epistles is what we call them. So any letter that Paul has written. And Paul writes a number of different kinds, two main types of letters, one to churches and one to individuals. And so, so far we've covered Romans, which was a letter to the church in Rome. Good. And then last week we covered 1 Corinthians, which is a letter to the church in Corinth. Good. I was waiting for someone to say Corinthian. No, it's Corinth. 
Okay, and so that was letter number one last week. This week, we're going to cover uh, what we call Second Corinthians. Um, and we're going to touch on why I say we call it Second Corinthians. And specifically, it's because we have, we have textual evidence that there was actually more letters written to the church in Corinth than just the two that we have. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, we are going through what we call, we're going in canonical order. And so it's the way that the Bible was put together. So we're in Romans two weeks ago, last week, first Corinthians, second Corinthians will continue that way, just how it's laid out in, in all of your Bibles. And so for those of you playing along at home, if you would like to read those books of the Bible before we get to them, especially these next couple, they're short enough to be able to bite those off in a week and you would be able to kind of get a better understanding um, of that whole thing. So we're going in canonical order. Uh, in Romans, uh, which is largely considered Paul's manifesto regarding sin and the way to salvation, uh, which is through Jesus and only Jesus, it, it, that was the book of Romans. And last week, as we talked through 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter to the church that he helped establish. So Paul helped establish this church in Corinth. And they had fallen into a whole bunch of sin, a whole bunch of quarreling, a whole bunch of infighting. I mean, the church was completely and totally messed up. And our big takeaway from last week was that love should be the lens through which we view the messy relationships that God has placed in front of us. That regardless of what it is that other people are going through, we have to be willing to enter into those relationships if we are going to help move those people past what they're going through. And so that's what Paul was largely talking about to the church in Corinth last week, to his, to his first letter. And so before we get into, into 2 Corinthians, I want us to just pull out for a second and say, you know what? The reason that we're going through this series is because a lot of us in here have professed a faith in Christ. But oftentimes, overall, we, we struggle to grasp God's word. We struggle to understand it oftentimes, even, even big overtones, because so often we're, we're looking at the trees, and in the midst of looking at the trees, we can't see the forest, right? And so that's the point of this, for us to be able to zoom out and say, okay, what is Paul actually writing about to the church in Corinth? What is God's word saying in these big, massive overtones that we're going through? What was the overall intent of the letters that Paul was writing. And for us to get a better grasp on the big picture of God's word and what he is communicating to us is the reason that we're here. So this book is named Second Corinthians. Yeah, you can go ahead and put the, uh, the slide up here. Uh, this is the book of Second Corinthians. The author is Paul. The date is somewhere between 55 and 57 AD. Okay, that's usually where people have it, have it pegged. He's writing, again, from Ephesus. And all of these books that we're going through, these epistles, these letters, are named after the church that he wrote to, not where he wrote from. Okay, so again, he's writing from Ephesus, but he's writing to the church in Corinth. Okay, we have Ephesians, which Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus later on. But, like I said, this is, the, the book is named 2 Corinthians, but it's not because it's the second letter he wrote, but it's because it's the second letter that was preserved. And so we're going to talk about a couple theological terms today, and as I promised, I'm going to make sure that we explain these theological terms, because I also recognize there's people, one, who are new to faith and probably haven't heard them, and two, there's a lot of us in here who have heard the words but still have no clue what they mean 50 years later, right? And that's okay, because maybe someone never took an opportunity to stop and explain those, explain those to you. 
So Paul, in the midst of this letter, he talks about another letter and another visit that he had to the church in the first seven chapters. And we'll get to those in a second. And so in those chapters, he takes aim at what was said and what needed to be done in order for the church in Corinth to continue to function properly. If the church was going to function properly, they needed to change some things. So like I've said the last few weeks, a lot of Paul's letters were written to correct behavior and bad theology among the church. Specifically, the church that had been established, right? The church had been established in Acts chapter 2, the early church, and already, not a hundred years later, the church is already messed up. The apostles are still around, and the church has already lost its way away from the early church. So let's take a second and understand, make sure we understand what I'm saying. There was another letter written to the church in Corinth. Textual evidence says that there's another letter written. Paul is referring to another letter that was written. And we can infer, what we can infer would happen was that the letter we talked about last week being 1 Corinthians wasn't received well by the church because of all the things that we were talking about. Paul's like, hey, just love each other better. Stop being dumb and move forward. And so ironically enough, the church is like, what? You can't just write me a letter like that, drop the mic and walk away and assume I'm going to change everything. So the letter wasn't, the church didn't respond well to the letter. So Paul went to visit them in person. And then after he visited them in person, he wrote them another letter. We don't have this letter. So if you're like me, my mind automatically jumps to whether or not that letter was important. It's not part of our Bible, but that that then also raises some red flags in my mind of thinking to myself, well, hold on. If Paul wrote another letter to the church in Corinth and that's not in our Bible, does that mean my Bible is incomplete? And that's a fair, that's a fair thought. That's, that's, that's what I went to. And so when I talk about these theological terms, I'm going to share with you the first theological term. You can go ahead and write this down. It's not on the screen. Your first theological term this morning is the term inspiration, inspiration. The term is used when we're referring to the idea that the entire word is what we call the inspired word of God. We see this in second Timothy three sixteen. It tells us that all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. So God inspired these men to write it through or under, under the, the, through the Holy Spirit. We'll just go with that. And if you want to have a conversation about it later, you can ask Pastor Jeff. Um, <laughs> but if all scripture is God, God breathed, then how do we know that we aren't missing some of God's breath? Right? How do we know there's other scripture that we have unaccounted for? Because if you've been around church for a long time, maybe you read the Da Vinci Code, right? Back when that was popular and Dan Brown wrote it and the church had a big uprising about it. Then we all settled down and we were like, okay, it's just fiction. It's fine. But maybe you read that or maybe people were talking about that. And you're like, yeah, what if there's other gospels? I've heard of other gospels. Why aren't those gospels included? And now you're telling me that Paul wrote other letters to the church in Corinth. How come we don't have third Corinthians then? Because I think 3 Corinthians, obviously, he wrote a letter to them. Maybe that letter is important. Well, your second theological term that we need to understand this morning is a term called preservation. Okay? God, in his word, works very meticulously to make sure that these books of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, 
that was put together by men, I believe personally that his Holy Spirit carried the preservation of Scripture from its inspiration all the way to where we are now. So when we're talking about the idea of preservation in God's word, we can understand the fact that, okay, while that letter, that other letter, the lost letter to the church in Corinth may have been important to them, it wasn't important to us. And so God, rather than preserving that letter, made it go away. We can understand then that it wasn't the inspired word of God. Now, for some of you, you're like, time out. That's not good enough for me. That's okay. I get that. And the other thing that we need to be able to understand in the midst of this whole thing is that the inspired word of God, that God essentially said, you know what? It's, it, it, if it's not preserved, we can come to the conclusion that the church in Corinth, it, while it was helpful for them, it wasn't the spirit of the Lord working through Paul to write down his words perfectly. So Paul wrote letters. And so maybe it's easier for us to understand when we say this, is that Paul wrote a whole bunch of letters. We can tell he was a letter writer simply by the way that all of these different things are laid out. He was methodical in his writing. He was an incredibly good teacher with the quill. But just because Paul wrote a letter doesn't mean that it was the inspired word of God. And so that's one of the things that, that as I think through it, I'm like, you know what? If Paul wrote a letter to his mom, that's probably not helpful for me. Just because Paul wrote a letter doesn't mean God inspired that letter. And we can come to that conclusion simply because God, like I said, has preserved this perfectly for us. And so while that's, that lost letter to the church in Corinth was probably important to them, it is not important for us. So... Again, that can be a sticking point for some people, but if you're interested in having a deeper talk about that, again, Jeff would love to have that conversation with you. So, the second letter, though, that we do have from Paul is what we're focusing on today. And the reason I bring up that lost letter to Corinth is because Paul takes, like I said, the first seven chapters to talk about the idea of reconciliation. And that's your first fill in the blank. Reconciliation. Seven chapters Paul dives into the idea of wanting to be reconciled. He opens up his letter, though, by thanking God for comforting us when we're all amid our troubles. It's actually the key verse that I have down for this section as well. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I note this as the key verse in this section, because this entire section, Paul is doing his best to reconcile with the people of Corinth. The first seven chapters, the majority of this book is him reconciling to these people because they've taken offense to Paul. And we're going to talk about why in just a second, but they've taken offense to Paul and Paul knows and Paul recognizes that ultimately he isn't going to make any inroads with them. He's not going to be able to establish messy relationships with them until they're on good, solid ground relationally with one another. So he spends the majority of the time doing that. He lets them know that, that he acknowledges that things have been tense since his first visit. He refers to it even as the painful visit. Now, I don't know like what you guys call Thanksgiving, but I hope it's not like pain for the painful visit, right? You just call it last Thanksgiving. 
But for Paul to say, my painful visit, we know that this is probably a pretty difficult thing that he had conversations with them about. Even as last week we talked about some of the seedy stuff that was going on in the church in Corinth. When Paul writes his first letter in response to that, man, Paul was bold. He didn't back down. He called it like he saw it. And so all of a sudden he shows up and he's got a whole bunch of people who are pretty upset with him. And so Paul, like I said, he calls it the painful visit, but he wants to move forward and allow the church in Corinth to move forward as well, even though he has heard numerous things about the messiness of the church. Now, this is a good time for us to stop again, and I want you to turn and tell your neighbor, hey, neighbor, the church isn't perfect. There was less participation this time in the first week. Do it. Come on. Say it again. The church isn't perfect. There we go. I can put on my teacher hat and just say, I'll wait. <laughs> now, the harder one that we talked about, turn your neighbor and say, my church isn't perfect. There we go. Good. Little old-fashioned Baptist guilt for all of you. So, made you participate. But Paul wants to mend this relationship between him and the church in Corinth and wants to air out the fact that they rejected Paul and they need to move forward. But it begs the question as to why they rejected Paul in the first place. Now, we can read through some of the lines in the way that Paul is responding to them. We need to remember that the church in Corinth is comprised largely of Gentile and Greek members. And so there were two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. If you weren't Jewish, and for most of us in here were not, you would be a Gentile. And so Paul is writing largely to a group of Greek Gentiles. And they're, they're new members of Christ. They brought with them pagan and cultural influences. Talked about uh, glorifying wisdom. They had these ecstatic utterances and speaking in tongues that we talked about last night. They, they, they were eating meat offered to idols. Promiscuity and the denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ was, was, was just running rampant in their church. So the people in Corinth, when Paul was around, were frankly, they got bored of Paul. As we talk about, they got bored of Paul. Um, they thought Paul was a, a bad public speaker. They thought he was a bad leader. He was poor. He was always being persecuted by someone. Can you imagine someone looking down on you for that, by the way? Man, I can't stand that guy. He's always getting persecuted, right? Like, what? Come on, Corinth. He's always, so he's always getting persecuted by someone. And he dabbled in manual labor as a tent maker rather than being paid for his speaking abilities. So the church is like, man, Paul, like, look at your rap sheet, bro. Like, like this whole thing, everything that, that, that you are and that you stand for, like who you are as a person, we are bored by that. So let's pause for a minute. Let's, let's, let, let's back up and let's, let's use a metaphor for this. Let's say last year... Close to this time, you're at a party where, I don't know, the, the Astros had maybe just defeated the Dodgers in Game 7 of the World Series. You were at that party, okay? <laughs> now, bear in mind, everybody who just cheered is not an Astros fan. They're a not-Dodger fan, just to clarify. And at that party, the host at some point brings out some cookies from Costco, Right? Like cookies from Costco, I am in because we had hot dogs and cookies from Costco is way better than just hot dogs, right? So you have your, your cookies, you jump at them because you like cookies and, and right as you're finishing your last bite though, they bring out creme brulee and you're like, what? 
<laughs> Why'd you bring out the oatmeal raisin first when we got creme brulee sitting in the kitchen? Right? And so, so all of a sudden, your Costco oatmeal raisin cookie looks pretty bad. You're kind of bored by it. Like, you were great at the time, but all of a sudden, there was something else that you thought was going to be offered something better than what you currently had. So it wasn't necessarily that you didn't like the cookie, Right? It's just that you're being off, what you're being offered looks way more appealing, and frankly, you just got a little bit bored with Costco's bakery. This is the same thing that we have going on with Paul, and, and yeah, for those of you keeping score, I just related Paul to an oatmeal raisin cookie from Costco. Write that in your notes. It'll be important later on. But this is seemingly what we have here with the apostle. The Corinthians are bored by their teacher and the guy who set up their church in the first place and are starting to listen to some outside voices. They decided these other people were more exciting to listen to. The church had been exposed to speakers who were better orators than he was, shinier leaders than he, than he was, who were better who were well off, who were better polished, they essentially became disenfranchised, bored, and borderline embarrassed by the Apostle Paul. And that's where the church in Corinth was. So Paul then is responding to all of this in his letter in the first seven chapters. So Paul starts out by telling them that their admiration of these leaders is a distortion of the value system that they should have in place. Like, guys, you're, like, that's completely and totally messed up. It shouldn't be about these guys who have come in to woo them. It should be about us pointing people to Jesus. It shouldn't be about same, shameful self-promotion. It should be about us saying, you know what? It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about me. It's about him. And Paul then aligns himself and the other apostles as slaves and bondservants to Christ. That the persecution the apostles were facing was endured so they could point people to Jesus and not to themselves. And so when they were frustrated with Paul or bored with Paul because he kept getting persecuted all the time. Man, can you believe that guy? Paul's saying, well, we're being persecuted all the time because we're simply pointing people to Jesus over and over and over and over again. He's essentially telling them that Christian leadership isn't about status in our place in the hierarchy. But actually, it's about Jesus being glorified through our words and through our actions. Simply stated, he tells them that Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but to point people to the one who is impressive. And that's what Paul is talking about. In chapter 3, Paul responds to the church's demands for letters of recommendation and the need for knowing all of Paul's credentials. They're questioning who... Paul is, which is crazy because obviously Paul set up the church in the first place and, and we don't know of any questions that they had when Paul was setting up the church originally. Like it seems like the point where you should ask for somebody's credentials is before he sets up a church for you. But instead they're like, you know what? We have all these other shiny leaders and orators and all these other guys who were teaching us and people who were teaching us right now. And so, you know what? I want to compare your credentials to theirs. Paul, give us your Credentials. So he tells them in chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, that the church in Corinth is his letter of recommendation. He says, hey, just look at yourselves. I helped set up that church. That proclaiming Christ and setting up the church for them to honor and worship God should be enough. That was the point of the whole thing. He then goes on a sidebar reminding, reminding the church that they're Christ's people in this new relationship that they have with them. He compares the Old Testament, or he compares it to the Old Testament covenant that God had with Israel. 
And through that, he gets to chapters four through seven, where Paul is going to flip the Corinthians idea of glory and success on its head. So Paul shows this by highlighting the idea that the crucified Christ, where, where, where a glorified Christ who was honored and praised and worshiped, that, that, we, that the people at the time were honoring God and glorifying God and worshiping God, not because he came with a sword dipped in blood, riding on a stallion, ready to overthrow the, the current church government or the current political government at the time. It's they were honoring God and worshiping God and loving God because he lowered himself to a servant. He lowered himself to death, even death on a cross and conquered death on our behalf. And so because of the fact that he did that, people are honoring him and glorifying him. So Paul's taking the Corinthians idea of what glory looks like and flipping it completely and totally on its head. Paul tells them that the cross revealed a whole bunch of things to the world. The first was the idea of salvation by Christ and dying on the cross that I just talked about. But he also points out that God's character is revealed through the crucifixion as well. That we can see who God is in the midst of the crucifixion. It was Christ's love for us and his self-sacrifice that ultimately is going to earn us a spot in heaven. And it has nothing to do with how nice we are as people. Paul talks about that. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. The last thing Paul points out about the cross is that because of Christ's love for us and his self-sacrifice, we should all be willing to do the same thing. So again, when we think about Corinth and the audience that he was talking to, these are wealthy people. And we'll get to that in just a second. But these are people who were on a main port People who love the idea of numerous gods, they're worshiping, you know, Aphrodite. They have her temple and a bunch of different idols and all this stuff that was set up. And they also love the idea of knowledge and wisdom and arguing with one another. And so Paul tells them that we should be willing to to sacrifice who we are for the needs of other people. Well, in a culture that prides themselves on being the best and being the richest and being the most knowledgeable, this is incredibly countercultural. Paul is telling them to be the opposite of who they are, that we should be imitators of Christ. So just as Jesus was humbled and was willing to suffer on our behalf, that we should be the same way. Paul reminds them these very same attributes that they're looking down on Paul about are the ones he is trying to imitate regarding Christ's character. So when Paul is defending himself regarding persecution, he's pointing him back to Jesus' persecution. When they're looking down on Paul regarding his humility, he's pointing him back to Jesus' humility. When they're looking down on Paul because of his poverty, he's pointing him back to Jesus being born in a barn. Paul's relating who he was to who Jesus is. So when, the, when they disapprove of all of those things, they're also disapproving of Jesus' way of life as well. And he tells them that his lifestyle is proof that his faith is authentic and his faith is sincere. He really wants to work things out with this church in Corinth, but refuses to let them off the hook when it comes to being transformed by the spirit of the Lord. And that's going to be, honestly, that's going to be our overall theme as we continue through this, is the transformation by the spirit of the Lord. He won't let him off the hook. Last week, we talked about the idea of presenting truth and presenting grace, right? 
and the messiness that comes with Christian relationships. This is what we have here, where Paul is trying to reconcile, but he's not willing to water down the truth in the midst of reconciliation. That's what we have Paul doing here. Paul goes back to the idea that we were talking about last week, where it's a mess of relationships, that real ministry happens in the midst of that mess. Which leads us to section two. Section two is going to be Second Corinthians chapters eight and nine. Okay, and this major theme he's dealing with the idea of generosity. Okay, generosity. And so, like I said, Corinth was a pretty rich city, pretty wealthy city, and the way that they came into their wealth was was pretty gross. We talked last week, right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's where the money come from, came from. Essentially, think of Las Vegas, but on a port city with sailors and all those types of people. Okay? It's a pretty gross city, but it's a pretty well-off city because of their imports and exports as well. So here Paul shifts to talking about the church in Jerusalem that has fallen on hard times. And so again, the church in Jerusalem is largely going to be made up of people who were Jewish. And he's talking to a group of people who were Gentiles. And so Paul says, hey, the, the church in Jerusalem's fallen on t- hard times. They need a little bit of help. And he's going to do his best to try to raise money for them by asking other churches if they would help out. He talks about this in the book of Romans, chapter 15, where he asked the Romans to set aside a chunk of money. He's, got, he's asked the Corinthians to do it as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, last week, in the, mid, in, in the midst of our outro, All the other non-Jewish churches were happy to give to this fund. We know the church in Galatia gave to this fund for the church in Jerusalem. We know the church in Macedonia gave for the church in Jerusalem. But because the Corinthians were all tied up in their own beef with Paul, they hadn't given any money to support the other church. They hadn't given any money to support their brothers and sisters in Christ back in Jerusalem. Paul reminds them, though, that this isn't just about money. And this is where we see the brilliance of Paul. It's because Paul's metaphors aren't woven into oatmeal cookies from Costco. Paul's metaphors are weaved into exactly what the church was going through at the time. And so when Paul talks about the idea that that God is going to take care of his church, he reminds them that it's not just about money. This is merely another sign that they haven't been transformed by the work of Christ on the cross and his spirit that is now residing in the hearts of those who believe. Paul's saying, look, that's not your money in the first place. But you know what? It's not about the money. It's about honoring God with the resources that we have. It's about being good stewards of our money. And so for those of you who are in here wondering, does that apply to me? Yeah, it does. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor who wants to make sure that our offering is good week after week. I'm saying that because that is one of our spiritual acts of worship, of being good stewards of the things that God has blessed us with in the first place. That it's not our money to begin with. And Paul pushes on this. He beats it into their heads. Even the key verse that follows, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus takes this whole money thing that they have going on, and and them not supporting the church in Jerusalem, he's like, you know what? Here. 
We're going to explain your issue with money and not supporting your brothers and sisters in Christ with the money that's not yours in the first place, and we're going to relate it to Jesus and our relationship with him. Here, let me give you a hint. For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, like you are rich, Corinthians, though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, Corinthians, give your money, support your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's taking this whole situation of their lack of generosity and saying, let me explain the gospel in the midst of this. Because again, it's not just about money. Paul in his brilliance, is telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Section 3. It covers 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13. I wrote challenge to Corinth, but there's a couple different pieces to this that we're going to lay out. Okay, So challenge to Corinth is our major theme here. So Paul really spends the rest of his time talking about the people who he refers to in a sarcastic tone as super apostles, which I really love Paul for using sarcasm because that's the main way in which I communicate. Um, (laughs) If Paul embraced sarcasm in his rhetoric, like I'm allowed to do it as well. Okay. Um, But they came to Corinth uh, and these people, these super apostles came to Corinth. And again, they were shiny and and incredibly polished and spoke incredibly eloquently, which then launches Paul into this comparison game. He essentially says, look, these guys can't hold a candle to me when it comes to their credentials. Like, you want to compare credentials? Great, let's compare credentials. I'll tell them, I'll tell them who I was. Paul talks about how he was a better Bible scholar. He, he talks about how he actually spent time with the resurrected Jesus. And how he was given his entire life to the mission of Christ. And to top it off, hey, church in Corinth, remember, I never even asked for money which would have been in stark contrast to these super apostles who were coming in and charging exorbitant exorbitant amounts of money in order for the church to hear their wisdom. And so Paul was like, look, my life has been completely transformed. I was a Pharisee, as a matter of fact. Like, I knew everything. I I had the Bible memorized. You think you're better than me? There's no chance you're better than me. And beyond that, I spent time with Jesus. Man, if I had the option to talk to somebody who didn't spend time with Jesus and someone who did spend time with Jesus, I'm choosing the guy who did spend time with Jesus every time. Every single time. So that's what, that's what Paul is talking about here. And then he talks about, again, his persecution. That I was, I've been persecuted, but that's evidence of my faith in Christ. That's evidence of the fact that I've chosen to be poor. That he could have continued to be a Pharisee. He could have continued to pad his pocket. But rather than do those things, he decided to humble himself and serve the Lord as a tent maker, not asking for money from anybody, but simply allowing his life to be transformed by Christ. So Paul, it's funny, he lays out this whole list, right, where he compares it, and then he says, but I don't want to brag about those things. Like, Paul, you just kind of bragged about those things, but okay, man, cool, I'll I'll go with where you're going. He says, I'm not going to brag about that stuff, though, because actually, you know what? None of the stuff that you think matters actually matters. 
You want my credentials? There's my credentials. Now throw them away because none of that stuff even matters. Instead, he talks about how messed up he is. He talks about how flawed he is. He talks about how weak he is because those inadequacies are what allow him to see Christ working through him. He's not bragging in his strength. He's bragging in his weaknesses. He tells them in 12.9 that God told them, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect through weakness. Guys, the entire reason that that Jesus chose a group of fishermen and outcasts to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth it's because, because people would know looking at them, just looking at them, and probably for the fishermen, smelling them as well. That this wasn't about them. It wasn't about who they were and how good they were. It was all about Jesus and the fact that they had been transformed by their time with him. And so Jesus is consistently pointing people back to them. And Paul is consistently pointing the church in Corinth back to Jesus, which leads him to this challenge and warning in 13.5, where it says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He's telling them they need to check themselves before they wreck themselves. You can write that down. I think it's a quote to a rap song in the early 90s as well. <laughs> but he's hoping they understand who Jesus really is. He's got a heart for these people. These are people that, that he helped establish this church alongside. And so you can, you can just hear Paul just pleading with them, just test yourself, test yourself, test yourself. He wants this church to be reconciled to him and then be able to move forward and be transformed by the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord. And then he says goodbye to the church in Corinth. He's like, all right, good. And he does his outro. He does his thing that he normally does. But like each week that we've gone through these different things, we need to understand where we fit into this narrative. Because it's one thing for us to philosophically agree with everything that we just went through. It's another thing for us to say, okay, look, Unlike that lost letter to the Corinthians, this was preserved for a reason. This is supposed to be helpful in teaching and training and admonishment. And so because of that, I need to apply the things that are in this holy book to my life. Paul's writing to a specific group of people but it should serve as a warning to all of us that we need to make sure our understanding of Christ is an understanding that he humbled himself so we could be with him in heaven forever. That we should brag about who Christ is and not who we are, which brings us to our big idea. The big idea is the cross should challenge our values and transform us through the work of the Holy Spirit. The cross should challenge our values and transform us through the work of of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul keeps going after the church in Corinth. He's like, hey, you're messed up here. Do this. See how, see how you, your failure to give financially and generously to other churches is, is just a symptom of you not being transformed by the Holy Spirit? See how that fits in? So then the question today is, is has the cross transformed us? to the very core and nature of who we are? Do we see everything we do through the lens of Christ? 
and specifically Christ defeating death on the cross? Because if the answer is no, and the answer is no, then we need to be okay with us continuing to be in process. We've talked about this for the last three weeks. We've landed on this for the last three weeks of the idea that it is okay to be in process as long as you continue in process. It's not okay to stick. It's not okay to just stay where you are and say, nope, I'm in process. I'm good. Nope. That's not how it works. As long as you are continuing to pursue Jesus, as long as you're continuing to renew your mind, then we have to be okay with being in process. Beyond that, the question is, are we, are we bold about our inadequacies and okay with just being in process? Are we okay saying to our friends, you know what? I do not have it figured out. I don't. And not just as a platitude, and then you go on for half an hour about how they're wrong about what they believe. But rather actually talking with them about the things that, man, I'm just not good at this. Man, mom's out there. The invention of Pinterest has ruined mom culture. Can I just be real? I, I've been real with the guys. Uh, I, I've hit them over the head quite a few times in my first couple months here. Ladies, man, stop it. <laughs> stop comparing yourself to other moms. Man, compare yourself to who you're supposed to be in Christ. Who cares if you don't have like a weather, uh, like a weathered barn wood wall behind your toilet? (laughs) That has nothing to do with who you are in Christ. Stop the comparison game. Are we bold about our inadequacies when ladies, you can rather than talk about how perfect you have everything set out. You can say, man, I messed up this week in my parenting. I yelled at my kid when really it wasn't even about my kid, but I really took it out on him. And what have you done? What have you, what, what maybe strategies can I put in place in order to make sure that doesn't happen again? Right? That should be the narrative of the conversation. It shouldn't be about how great you are and how perfect you are and what shape you cut their sandwich into in the morning. But as we're bold about our inadequacies and okay with being in process, uh, are we okay with the fact that there's no such thing as super Christian? Are we okay with never having arrived at glory until the other side of eternity? Are we okay with that? And the answer should be yes. And it should also serve as a reminder to all of us in here that none of us have it all figured out. That at one point, you walked into a church for the first time, or maybe you were carried in for some of you like I was. But at one point, you were new to faith as well. And through the process of maturation, through you allowing the Holy Spirit to move you and guide you and grow you, you have become the mature Christian that you are now. But that does not mean you have arrived. I have not arrived. I plan on never arriving. That's the beautiful thing about God's word, right? Every time you pick it up, something new jumps out at you. But what would it look like if we were simply okay about boasting about Christ and not about ourselves? I think a lot more people would be willing to come to church. And I'm not just talking about our church. 
talking about the capital C church. Because we would be okay with our flaws being a work in progress rather than pretending like we have it all figured out. Maybe that label hypocrite might be shed at some point. Because we haven't arrived. We're never going to arrive, so let's stop pretending like we have and be okay with being in process. Paul constantly goes back to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Is that what your relationships look like? Is that what your conversations look like at work, at your kid's soccer game, even at home? I mean, that alone is a challenge, right? At Thanksgiving, when it's going to get awkward, (laughs) because you know where your relatives stand on the matters of God. But us feeling awkward isn't an excuse. Us remaining in a space where we're waiting for the right time to come, along, to come alongside other people to talk to them about Jesus is not an excuse. The right time is when you have an opportunity. So church, let's seize the opportunity. Let's stop waiting for another one. Seize it. Take it. If we as a church just seized one opportunity this week, the kingdom of God would grow by 300 more than it did last week. And that's our responsibility. Not just to become better at being Christians, but to let other people know about the good news of Jesus. And Paul is telling him, look, you got to get your house in order, Corinth. You're messing up. You're doing a bunch of stupid stuff, but honestly, you need to be, you need to be renewed by the Spirit. And once you are renewed by the Spirit, it's your responsibility, church of Corinth. It's your responsibility to let other people know about Jesus. The question remains for us. Are we allowing the Spirit to renew our lives on a regular basis and allowing His prompting to move us forward in those conversations that we need to have in the midst of those messy relationships like we talked about last week? Let's pray and get out of here. Father, man, thank you for Paul. What a brilliant guy. And not just because he's smart, but he recognized that he was nothing apart from you. That even as he talks about in that last section of Corinthians, that he can, he can talk about all of these things that he has done, all these things that he has in order. He could, he could boast about his strengths. He can boast about his talents. But none of that matters. Rather, he decides to lower himself, to become a servant, to become poor, to serve your church, so he can point people back to who Jesus is over and over and over again. He talks about the idea of the transformation that he has undergone and that all of us need to undergo, Father. And Father, if there are people in here today, and and we do this every week, but with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, Father, I just pray if there's people in here who have not yet committed their life to Christ. I pray that they would, A, admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They would recognize that they're jacked up just like the rest of us, that we're all in process. They're a sinner in need of a Savior. B, they would believe that you sent your Son to conquer death on our behalf. So when we die, we can spend eternity with you. And And as long as we are here, as long as we're on this side of eternity, Father, we get to serve you and honor you and point people back to you, that we would believe that you sent your Son for that. And see that we would choose to follow you every single day. Which is what we as a church need to wake up and respond to daily. 
Am I going to choose to follow Jesus today? Am I going to choose to follow Jesus today? Father, I pray that we would recognize that. I pray there are people in here who would come to faith today because of that. Lord, we're so thankful for you, and I pray that you would put people right in our way for us to have a messy conversation with, for us to tell them about you and the way that you've transformed our lives. And that it's not about us. It's not about me having it all together. It's about the fact that you sent your son on my behalf. And we're thankful for that. It's in your son's precious name we pray, Father. Amen. Hey, a couple things. If you, uh, if you made a decision today um, for Christ on your Connect card, there's a little spot for you to put an X right there. We'd love to follow up with you and just have a conversation. Uh, other than that, you can take your Connect cards. There's baskets and ushers in the back at all four corners, actually. Jeff and I will be up here like always. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.